It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. Bud Shaw has been one of the most trusted sports authorities in Northeast Ohio for 30 years. He knows where all the bones are buried in Cleveland, where he became a Plain Dealer columnist in 1991. Oh, we're going to talk Cleveland, but much more, too. Bud's resume also includes stops in Atlanta, San Diego, Philadelphia, Chicago, Detroit, and a few other parts unknown. And he's covered events everywhere, including overseas. Wherever he's worked, Bud has been one of those writers who can make you laugh. He sees through the absurdity of sports. No wonder I've always enjoyed his company. This is going to be fun. Hey, Bud, it's great to talk to you again. I'm just glad you're awake. <laughs> you mean at my age? Well, no, I mean that your Twitter bio says, quote, currently napping. Uh, it was a long and exhausting career. Well, hey, hey, it's a well-deserved rest and retirement. I'm envious, and but I'm also very happy for you. So, hey, I'm glad you're taking a nap. I appreciate know. that. I've been known to nap on the keyboard and not even realize it. So, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> 40 years, how many, 45 years in sports writing? Yeah, I think 1977 would have been, yeah. So that's it, would have been my first year. 1977, uh, yeah, yeah. Moved to Western Pennsylvania as for my first job. And uh, this this is how I know I'm old. The star quarterback at one of the six high schools I covered was, was a guy named Jim Kelly. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. Who, who, even with my lack of scouting Acumen, I knew he was going to be good when I just <laughs> when I saw him playing in high school. So, something stood out about something him. Even stood in out. High school, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So basically, forty-five years yes. in the business. That, that's a that's a lot of late nights, deadlines, flights, bad food, and a few beers. Yeah, you know, I I was talking to my brother right about the time I was talking to him about taking a buyout and getting away from it, and he reminded me that when I was a kid, like. 10 years old, 12 years old, that I talked about wanting to be a sports writer. Hmm. And we used to have three newspapers in Philadelphia open on the breakfast table with open to the sports pages mm -hmm. when I got up. And, right. And I started reading and not just reading about the teams and the players, but also looking at like these bylines and saying, oh, yeah, right. hey, this guy Bill Conlon got to go to L.A. last yeah, night exactly. to cover the Phillies. That looks like fun. Right. So that was about the extent of my, you know, my my planning was that I was bad in math and science and thought that looks like a fun thing to do, that sports writing stuff. Well, I think we were very similar in that regard. I mean, I just saw it as a chance to go to games for free, sit in good seats, and travel around. Yeah. And they called it work. I think you and I have been uh, to a few Olympics and been in a couple pictures together. And I look back at that sometimes and I think I was just uh, this goofball growing up in suburban Philadelphia. And now I'm standing in Sydney, Australia yeah, exactly or right. Nagano, Japan. And how did that all happen? I don't know, but it was quite a career. Sure. It was quite a lot a of fun. And most of your career was spent in Cleveland. 
almost 30 years uh, at the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com and, and even a little stint at WKYC. Yep. So uh, we're going to talk a lot of Cleveland. All right. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad we're actually sitting in downtown Cleveland right now at a studio together because I feel like this is a city that, um, that I've really come to love that I walked into with a certain amount of trepidation, you know, <laughs> back in 1991, not really knowing what it could become at the time. It was not uh, everybody's vacation destination. So, mm-hmm. you know, a quick, real quick story. I, I got here in 91 and I had gotten married the year before or uh, the week before I got week here. before. Yeah, the week before. Well, I just want, to, want you to know that you, you need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> it has come up in conversation a few times. Uh, and I, I was uh, in downtown Cleveland. Uh, hey, if you want to score points with a woman, you take her to downtown Cleveland in 1991 for a honeymoon. That, that really goes over well. So we're at the downtown Sheraton, and it's a Thursday afternoon in late September, and it's the Indians are at home. It's also their worst season Still to date, 105 lost season. That's a lot of L's. And they had a makeup game that they were playing a Thursday afternoon, and I decided to take my uh, uh, my new bride over there, <laughs> and we walked in, and you could hear the 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 uh, vendors to begin with as you walked up the tunnel because. There wasn't anybody there. Is this, this is old municipal stadium. The old municipal stadium. Right. There was another game that night, and I had told her, you know, that this was a great sports town. And we walk in, and there might be two hundred people in the seats. And she has this mortified look on her face and says, "You told me it was a great sports town." And I said, "It is." And she said, "Why can I hear the pitcher talking to the catcher?" <laughs> so I was, well, uh, just give it some time. And by '94, of course, the Indians, uh, the city starts to revive, and the Indians are in the playoffs for the first time in 41 years. And um, her and her girlfriends are going to games with, you know, Christmas lights on their hats, oh, right? Because right. they're big fans. They're all in. Oh yeah, they're all in. They're Always all in. knew it was going to happen. Yeah, right. It was, right. you know, to this day, it is still sort of my favorite period of sports writing because you know I had been in Atlanta and San Diego and mm-hmm. maybe eight the eight years prior to Cleveland I had been in these you know these two towns that were they were good enough sports towns but they were far different than the 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 kind of town I grew up in in Philadelphia you know the the rabid sports fan wasn't in San Diego at all and if it was in Atlanta it was more for a college football right. season than it was pro sports and um, so I was sort of not unknowingly, when I came here, I, I didn't know that I needed to be back in this kind of town where mm-hmm. where people hung on every win and loss. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to say on every word because they didn't hang on to my every word, but you did get a lot of feedback from people about what you were writing, uh, what your opinion and things were. Right. And, and it was... It, it was really an engaging time, and to see people here celebrate, you know, two World Series was uh, still one of the highlights of my career. Yeah, yeah. we're going to talk more about that because it was such a, a great, great time for the city, and uh, the whole city was rebounding at that moment. And uh, I want to get into that. Uh, I want to backtrack a little bit because before you got to Cleveland, you're at like seven different newspapers. I mean, <laughs> how many of these did you kill, bud? Just trying to stay ahead of the creditors, Doc. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had, uh, so, you know, I I already, ha- already had two newspapers on my uh, resume by the time I was out of college, about a year and a half. So then <laughs> yeah. I went back home to, to work in Trenton, New Jersey, and then in the Philadelphia Daily News. So I was working my way up into more pro sports towns, which I, you know, I really, really enjoyed doing. And um, I covered uh, the Eagles there with uh, when Vermeil took them to the Super Bowl for the first time, which was another, you know, huge thrill for somebody that grew up in, in Philadelphia 
whose father and uncles and and everyone uh, thought that they would never see the day when the Philadelphia Eagles could right. could beat the Dallas Cowboys in and in, in a playoff game, let alone go to a Super Bowl. So yeah. I was there for about a year and a half covering those, and I have the utmost respect for beat guys to this day oh, because yeah, it's right. an exhausting job, whether it's baseball, basketball, football, to stay, try to stay on top of everything that those guys are asked to do. Yeah, I, I have the same respect. I mean, I did it for a few years in Cincinnati, and I realized my brain doesn't work this way. Yeah. I, I need some variety, and so um, I just couldn't do that every day. It I was felt, relentless. I really did feel... Um, overmatched and, you know, stressed out. Yeah. You know, I was on a beat in, in, covering the Eagles with uh, a guy named Gordon Forbes co- covering the uh, the Eagles for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he'd been there forever. His phone would ring at training camp, and uh, I'd pick it up, and it would be Pete Rozelle calling him. <laughs> now, I had spent the last week trying to get anybody in the commissioner's office to call me, and nobody would call me. Right. And this guy, all of a sudden, the voice on the other end is saying, is Gordy there? Is Gordy? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, when I got an opportunity to go to San Diego and not be a beat guy and start writing some columns and some special stuff, I, I, I decided to do that. I don't know if it was the best career move to leave a, a sports town like uh, Philly for San Diego, but that's what I did. Well, definitely better weather. Certainly. I mean, yeah. you're going from like sitting around the cold rain at the vet <laughs> yeah. in Philly to going to Mission Beach in San Diego. Well, again, one of those things that makes you question the timing in your life, at least me, is that I get out there, I have two kids born out there, and I, it takes me about a year to realize that in order to afford a house out there for kids, I'd have mm-hmm. to live in Tijuana. So right. <laughs> I couldn't afford it on a newspaper salary. Right. And that's when, uh, when, when Atlanta offered me a chance to come back. I kind of j- uh, jumped at that just from a cost of living standpoint alone. Now in Atlanta, from '84 to '89, you were you were kind of doing more takeout stuff, right? Like yeah, I was. Profiles um, and- yeah, I was doing profiles. I was uh, um, only very occasionally would I write a uh, a column when everyone else, you know, was sick. Uh, they would ask me to do that. Um, and the Atlanta organizing committee started their build up toward trying to get the '96 games, right? And that was that was happening in the almost ten years earlier. Um, so in addition to covering whatever, like you did, uh, I was a generalist, and mm-hmm. I would cover an SEC or ACC football game everywhere, every weekend, somewhere. I would cover that. That's back when Atlanta's you know uh, masthead slogan was covering Dixie like the dew. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you don't get that many of those old timey things wow. anymore. Um, so yeah, I did a lot of college sports back then. I, I covered. You know, I was the second guy in on on the uh, Hawks when uh, when Dominique was there. Mm. Um, Georgia Tech when Mark Price and John Sally and those guys were there. So it was there was a lot of really interesting, fun uh, fun stuff to cover. But I got into starting to do Olympic style stuff because of the Atlanta organizing committee chase, right. chasing the bid. So. Right. When you think about the different takeouts and profiles, is there one that comes to mind when you think about that period of your career? I was uh, in Atlanta when Denny McLean was sentenced to the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, and uh, no one had been in to talk to him yet. And he was the famous Tigers pitcher. He was a famous Tigers games in the late '60s, somewhere like thirty-one and six one year uh, for the Tigers, and and had this kind of just this checkered post-career life that involved you know all sorts of 
you know, shady things, embezzlement, charges, all that. Well, he suddenly gets sentenced and is down in um, at the federal pen in, in, in Georgia. So I go over to talk to him. I set it up and I go in and I do this interview and he, maybe my dumb luck, he was going to pitch for the first time for, really? for the prison team. What was the name of the team? By the I way? can't remember the name of the team, but I, I just remember that it allowed me to write a lead that somewhere along the line of Denny McLean, comma pitching on twelve years rest. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a great lead. He was, <laughs> he was uh, very engaging, and, and I realized after the story ran that the reason was is that he thought I was going to carry his water on why he was innocent of mm. these charges, and of course, you know. I had other people I was talking to about him and about what had put him in prison to begin with. So it wasn't like I was giving him a forum to, you know, try to get early probation. I was writing a story. Right. And um, we wanted to take a picture of him Mm -hmm. to go with the story. And then he had put on, you know, talk about a sedentary life, you're in prison, right? He had put on so much weight. Yeah, he wasn't mixing in any salads. He was, he was huge. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess vanity, you know, precluded him saying, yeah, get a photographer in here. He said, no, no pictures. So Really? I mean, wait a minute. So he was more upset about a photo because he didn't, he was too big. He was huge. But he was okay about being in prison. Yeah. Well, he, being you know, told about at right? least that, at least he could tried to argue that he didn't belong there. Oh, he, yeah. he would have he would have had a hard time arguing that he wasn't, you know, 330 pounds or yeah, 50 I have, pounds. Yeah, I have no argument about my one pack. So, so uh, the day that the story runs in the Atlanta paper, and, you know, back then, obviously, you worked for papers that, with Sunday circulations that were, you know, pretty hefty, you know? Mm-hmm. And Atlanta at the time, I think we were close to 500,000 or whatever. So it was a big newspaper and it was big, big circulation on Sundays. And I just remember getting a phone call. Maybe his one phone call that day was from him. And the things he was calling me were some of the worst things I've ever been called. And I covered Albert, Albert Bell for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so I realized after a while, I mean, first of all, he thought that I, you know, um, didn't do what he wanted me to do, which was to make him look innocent of the charges. Mm. But then later in the conversation, he said, and you let that artist rendering of me run in the paper. So what we did, because we didn't have a picture of him, was the staff artist drew this gargantuan guy in pinstripes looking through a jail cell. <laughs> oh, man. So <laughs> what could I say, you know? Sorry. Um, wow. So that was my my one experience with him. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you once wrote about Moto Ball. <laughs> uh, now, this, now, this was like the, the inaugural Goodwill Games in Moscow, I believe, yes. 1986. Uh, what, what in the hell is Moto Ball? Well, it, in 1986, Ted Turner... Um, who, by the way, was another guy that I would rank as one of the most intriguing, colorful people that I've ever written anything about. Atlanta Braves manager for a day. Atlanta Braves manager for a day. Um, once uh, pushed a baseball around the diamond with his nose before a game. I didn't Ca- know that. Came up, obviously, bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> he did it as a, uh, he tried to, he was going to race somebody. I don't know who it was that he was going to race, but they were smart enough to stop partway through. Um, but he had this idea that everybody in the world could just get along 
if they met on a sports field. And as we know, in mm-hmm. 1980, the Olympics was compromised by a boycott, and then in 84 again, mm-hmm. um, the Soviets paid back the U.S. for skipping 1980. So by 86, Ted thought, hey, here's what we can do. We can get the best athletes from around the world together to compete against the U.S. team, and we'll do it in Moscow, and we'll pave the way for, you know, strike up the harps, peace and harmony, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So he's looking to knock down the Berlin Wall. Basically. the Goodwill game. Yeah. Okay. And right. so, you know, being a big newspaper in Atlanta that was spending money freely at the time, they sent probably six of us over there to cover the inaugural Goodwill Games. <laughs> so here we are standing outside of uh, the Kremlin, you know, after having a, a beer or two and watching the changing of the guard at Lenin's tomb at four in the morning. And um, Ted is traipsing all over the Soviet Union at the time. Um, Ted was, so real quick aside, Ted was married at the time, and his wife generally would walk about 20 yards behind him because he was with one of the co-pilots of his plane, Mm. who looked a lot like Jojo Heatherton, you know, oh. was, uh, yeah, like a Swedish, oh. kind of a Swedish bikini model look. Okay, Ted. And uh, that's how Ted traveled around the Soviet Union. And at, at one point, um, at the opening ceremonies, we all were waiting for Ted outside of the opening ceremonies, and the, the Soviet press obviously wanted to a- ask him what he thought of it. And at one point in the opening ceremonies, they did this unbelievable card uh, show mm-hmm. where everybody in the stands was given a card and at the same time they flashed the card and it was this portrait, this unbelievably perfect portrait of, of Lennon. Mm. <laughs> and, and not John Lennon. Not, <laughs> not John Lennon. So uh, after the uh, opening ceremonies, um, they come out and we're all standing there and the Soviet press says, Mr. Turner, what did you think of opening ceremony card show? And he says... That Lenin guy, he must be a big deal around here. He's like Jesus Christ and George Washington all rolled into one. I mean, that's just the way Ted was. And, and the guy, I was most jealous of this guy on our on our staff, Rod Cawthon, who was a terrific uh, news side writer, who got to follow Ted around the Soviet Union for 10 days during this period and just write all of this kind of stuff. But one of the events there, and Dave Kindred remembers this because we were on the same trip together, um, was Motoball. And motoball was basically an oversized soccer ball, and it was played on motorcycles. Really? So, I mean, if you can imagine a demolition derby slash rugby slash soccer game, it was a brutal game of guys riding into each other, you know, at 30 miles an hour on... Were there penalties? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think everybody who played was being penalized. (laughs) Uh, But... That was one of the sports, and it was, you know, maybe the beginning of when Olympic, maybe not, a historian will correct me, but when Olympic cities started getting the Olympics and they would always have like one or, they would get to like pick one or two sports that was specific to their their country. Their region, right? No one ever picked motoball before or after that. Who was the best at motoball? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say the the Russian Hell's Angels. No, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. I don't know, but it was played on this. You know, it was a big muddy field, obviously, and um, it actually drew people. Like people would go and watch. Maybe not voluntarily, but they went and watched. Wow, I can't even imagine. Like, how did you win? I mean, what, 
<laughs> you just survived. Yeah, exactly. If you lived, it was you the, won. <laughs> so you spent a few years at the National, uh, you know, a much celebrated publication, but just did not work out. And then you come to Cleveland, and you've told us about your first day <laughs> yeah. with your wonderful wife, Susan, <laughs> who's still your wife. Yes. Despite yeah. you taking her to a doubleheader <laughs> in Municipal Stadium when, when they lost 105 Well, you know, games. the funny thing is when I got the job here, I called her and said, I, I got hired, I've got a job offer. And she said, oh my God, that's great. Because of course, I didn't have work. Mm -hmm. uh, we were getting married. There were some financial <laughs> concerns. And she said, where? And I said, Cleveland. And there was just silence, you know. And I said, hello. She said, Cleveland? And I said, come on now. You know, you're from Indianapolis. It's not like I'm taking you out of Paris. You right, know? right. So she got here, and, and it, it took her a couple of years, but she started really liking it. And uh, and it, it, as I told you, it's turned out to be it just turned out to be a great a great place to be for a lot of different reasons. Right. So you get here to Cleveland, and and you missed the drive, you missed the fumble, you missed the shot. Yeah. yeah. It was all before your time. So don't blame Bud Shaw for that. <laughs> you blamed him for enough other things. Exactly. You did see the Cavs obviously win that 2016 NBA title, yeah. which we're going to get into. You've also saw a couple of Game Seven heartbreakers, and then you saw the Browns leave town because you were here. And then return, despite the fact that you're still here. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and you throw through it all those ups and downs. Um, you always seemed like you had a good sense of humor about it. Is that just a way that you approached it? It really came across in Shaw's spin, the column that you did for so many years. Well, I I even early on I had, and, and probably why I wasn't a good beat person, and I, was that to me it felt sports felt more like entertainment that mm -hmm. that. I always wanted to try to write something that I thought people would remember for whatever reason. They thought it was funny, insightful, uh, had good quotes in it, whatever it was. Um, and the daily part of it, which I think was the heaviest lifting you can do at a newspaper uh, as a beat person, just didn't appeal to me that much. So probably to a fault at times, Todd, I, I tried to be more uh, entertaining than... And I needed to be on some topics. I remember when I covered the Eagles, there was a labor dispute going on, and I was writing stuff, and one of the linebackers, John Bunting, came up to me and said, this is serious. This isn't an improv act here. Like, you know, you're making fun of all this stuff. And I'm, and yeah. in retrospect, yeah. I didn't understand what he was meant then, but in retrospect, I do. So, but yeah, I've always felt like if there's a way that somebody can finish reading a story that I've done or, or a column about something and come away like kind of, laughing about something or, or finding it amusing in some way that I that I felt like that was what I was best suited to do. I've, I know other people who've written columns. Um, one was Bill Livingston in our town who was very good at hitting people over the head mm -hmm. when they deserved right. it. And you and, need that. You need and you do need that. that. You do need that. And I know guys that, that sort of fashioned themselves as columnists in, in our business. You know, it's the old... Guys want to know, like, when they get older, did, have I lost my fastball, you know? Mm -hmm, right. I'm not sure I ever had a fastball <laughs> when I was actually a real baseball pitcher in high school or as a columnist. But, but you could work the count. Yeah, I could work the count. You know, I could throw, yeah, I could, I could, throw hit, different the, speeds, I could hit corners at times, but, yeah. yeah. Right? But that's a skill, too. So, that's, that's the way I approached it, and, um, and I, it's some of the stuff that, that, um, that I did that, you know, was just, to me, seeing the the Indians get really good for the first time, and writing about some of the guys that came through here, mm -hmm. Manny Ramirez, and some of the crazy 
stuff that he did as a player. That's the kind of stuff I remember. What's the funniest thing that ever happened to you as a sports writer? Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> there was the time that I didn't get killed by Albert Bell. I ended up laughing about that. Well, let's hear this. I had, um, I had written a story. He, it, was, it was the season that he had uh, 50 homers and 50 doubles. Pretty good year. Pretty good year. And during that season, it had dawned on me that he had been totally unapproachable, and that that was not, you know, that shouldn't be a reason not to write about him. Mm -hmm. So I went in and spoke to Mike Hargrove, and uh, who was the manager at the time, and Dave Nelson, who who's passed away since, who was the first base coach and a really great guy. And I just tried to find out, like, what is it about Albert as a hitter that we don't know about? Yeah, because he was just just killing it, you know. You know and, and he was intimidating. Yeah. You know, he was the guy that nobody wanted to go to the, either the refrigerator or the concession stand oh, when his at bat was coming up. Yeah. And he was one of the the biggest. I don't want to say malcontents because his teammates may not have always looked at him that way. But from a media standpoint, he he was abusive to media people, abusive to fans. You know, threw a ball at a a fan, hit him in the chest in the stands. Threw a ball at a photographer. Got into it with Hannah Storm, as some people might remember during yeah, the World Series. I actually covered that game where he, he did a bicep uh, yeah. pose in the yeah, dugout. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And people in this town remember that's kind of an iconic moment. But I had gone in and and talked to them about him. And Hargrove, who I got along with very well, and Nelson had told me that the one thing Albert did that nobody knew about was that he, and this is back before software programs, right? So he would come back after an at-bat, and he had index cards in his locker, and he uh, he would write down who the umpire, home plate umpire was, what the sequence of pitches was, um, who was on base, mm -hmm. um, pitcher, you know, all this stuff. So he could go back and look at how these pitchers had pitched to him in very in similar situations. So I had never heard those stories before. So I go to Albert and I say, uh, "I'd like to talk to you about this column I'm going to write." And I can't say what he said to me at the time. But Go ahead. He made, we can always bleep it out. He made it very clear that he would never speak to me and that he had no intention of answering any questions from me. So. And he's got Danny McLean to back him up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, maybe he'd heard some bad things. Um, so I go home and I write this column, and I come in the next day, and I, I had to write something again the next day. The Orioles were in town. Cal Ripken was, um, you know, playing shortstop. Uh, Omar Vizquel was at shortstop for the for the Indians, and I had this idea that I would write about these two physically different yeah, players playing the guy, same position. Short guy, right? Yeah. So I go over to, and it's pouring rain, so all the teams are, everybody in the team is in the cl in the clubhouse. They're not out on the field. So are you in the Indians clubhouse at this time? I'm over in Orioles clubhouse. I find Cal Ripken. Okay, and he's happy to talk about anything else other than the streak. So he talks to me about Omar, and he's fantastic talking about Omar as a shortstop. So now I go, well, I got half of a column. So now I go in, start to walk into the Indians clubhouse to talk to Omar. And John Maroon was the uh, Indians PR guy at the time. And I'll never forget the four, four or five words, what is it, that you never wanted to hear, which is, Albert is looking for you. Wow. So I walk <laughs> in, and I see him stand up, and he waves me over. And he's dressing next to Vizquel. And I get over there, and he starts ranting and raving and screaming at the top of his lungs that 
I somehow went through his locker when he wasn't there and found his index cards. What? That's how he thought that I had found out about mm. these index cards. I'm sure, as you know, when guys get upset at stories, half the time they never even read the story. Oh, they heard one of their teammate, one of their it, teammate right. tells them something, right. and they go. So now I'm standing in the middle of a locker room that's totally packed with players, and I'm being accused of going through somebody's locker, which is not a great thing to be accused of in a baseball locker right. room. Yeah. So I try to walk that fine line between standing up for myself to mm -hmm. Albert and mm -hmm. not getting killed. Yes. So it, <laughs> when we're going back and forth, at one point, he's uh, you know maybe three inches away from the, my face, and his eyes are bulging. And Sandy Alomar comes into the locker room and sees what's happening and comes sprinting. And being a smart guy, Sandy knows he's not going to grab Albert, right? Who would? He grabs me, <laughs> and he pulls me out of the locker room. Yeah. And I said, what are you doing? I got work to do in here. And he says, you don't understand, man. He's crazy. <laughs> so he pulls me out. I go into the hallway, and I said, Sandy, I, I have work to do in there. And he's like, just relax. Wait a, wait a couple minutes, you know? So I realized that right before Sandy had come rushing over that I had seen like everybody, the players all started to move away, mm -hmm. which I thought was probably not a great sign. And there was one guy who kept moving closer to me during this period. And then Sandy sees this and runs in. And when I found out later is the one guy was this, our baseball writer who you know very, very well, Paul Hoynes. Oh, the great Hoynesy. And I said, Paul, I heard that you were like, help, you were ready to help me. Like, you kept coming over. And, he's, and he goes, yeah. He goes, hey, I'm sorry you had to go through that. I said, well, what were you going to do? He said, I was going to take him down low. <laughs> <laughs> which was a lot better than my plan, which was to fall backwards and start crying. Exactly, right? Well, wasn't Hoynesy a rugby player? He was a rugby player. Yeah, right, so right, yeah. he and I, I said it was the funniest thing because he and I laughed about that for about the next 15 years. I said whenever I would get in a, in a discussion with a player, I would look around and say, Hoynes, can you take this? Can you help me take this guy down low? No, that's um, a teammate. That's a but, teammate. But you know, and I remember going to John Hart, who was the GM at the time. Or he heard what had happened, and he called me, and he said, "I heard you had an, an issue with Albert." And I said, "Yeah." And I said, "Listen, you're going to have a lot more people hanging around this team now that you're you guys mm -hmm. are as good as you are." Exactly. And you know, you're going to get a you got to get a handle on this. And sure enough, the the Hannah Storm thing happened not too long after that. And um, and they were, you know, John Hart and Hargrove, they knew what, what they were dealing with with Albert, which I think why when his contract uh, was up and he had an opportunity to go become a free agent with Chicago, they weren't going to match that. Mm -hmm. as, as great a player as he was, you know, there was just this, you know, he had the Mr. Freeze uh, uh, reputation and nickname from coming in after a game and smashing the thermostat with his bat. Mm -hmm. He would come in after games when all the players all— all they wanted to do was eat the buffet, and he would take a bath to the buffet. That's that's when you start wow. to lose teammates. Yeah, right. You when, lost the room when you got rid of all the free food. Exactly. When the chick, chicken parmesan is laying on the floor because you took a bath to the table, that that's when you some of your teammates start looking at you a little funny. So after this incident with Albert, did you guys ever communicate with each other? Uh, ever do an interview with him? Ever talk about it? Yeah. How did you get along with Albert after? He that? was he was just a um, unpredictable. Uh, guy for so many people to deal with. And, and a few years later, I was at spring training and uh, he would walk into the locker room and look at me and say, hi, bud. 
And I was stunned. And I would say, hi, Albert, you know, didn't talk to him in that, mm. that spring training. And then the season started and they had, they used to have these lunches at this place called the Power House, it was called. And um, they would bring in a player from the opposing team. So it was him and Cecil Fielder at this lunch before a game early in the season. So I went to the lunch and listened to them talk and and I walked up to him afterwards and said, hey, can I, it's the first time I'd asked him for an interview since the incident. I said, can I talk to you at the uh, at the ballpark? And I got the same response I got the last time in the locker room. He said, why would I ever talk to you? <laughs> and I said, because you did for 10 days in spring training. And he said, I'll never do that again. <laughs> so you never knew where you stood with him. He was a, he was a remarkable player, and an unbelievable, uh, imposing, you know, hitter, but a guy that, Nobody, you know, felt comfortable around. You know, years later, Todd, he he would call into radio talk shows in town. He would have nothing to do with the media when he was here. Right. And he still, this was as recent as a couple years ago, he would call in and tell whoever the host was what he would do to fix the Indians. Really? And why the ownership was too cheap to do it and all this stuff. Does he call him with an alias or is he calling? No, he calls in as Albert. Really? You know, back in the day, he had a twin brother named Terry. And back in the day, he used to, Terry used to call the newspaper when when an unfavorable article about Albert was written, and he would pretend to be Albert. So there was a lot of wow, that's there, a lot, that's deep. There was a lot of uh, um, dysfunctional family stuff going on with. Well, maybe uh, some days you were dealing with Albert, and some days you were dealing with Terry. Yeah, you just didn't know which one it was. Listen, if I could have picked which one I wanted to punch me that night, it would have been Terry. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, what a great time, though, for the Indians and the city of Cleveland. That was such an electric ballpark, 455 consecutive sellouts from 95 to 2001. The World Series appearances, um, you know, it's one thing for athletes to be in the game. They're, they're playing, right? We're on the outside as media guys. But even for a media person, when you're around a team in a moment for a city like that, was that special for you, too? Yeah, it was. Um, it, 95 was special in that I really thought that that team was maybe the best team I had seen in, in I don't know, maybe in my sports writing career. Hmm. Just because that lineup was was Lofton by Erga, Bell, Ramirez, Tomey, um, not that Paul Sorrento belongs in that conversation, but Sandy Alomar, who was an all-star MVP at one point, was catching. You know, that sense of they may never come back here with a team this talented again. And and sure enough, in 97, they got back. But that team was nowhere near as talented. And um, that team struggled so much during the regular season that John Hart and others will probably deny that this actually happened. But they had prepared a, a release that they might have to let Hargrove go in 97. Wow. So the team kind of rallies, not necessarily for Mike, but their talent starts to show up. They get all the way to the World Series. And to me, that was one of the times that was most crushing to be a sports writer in this town because I knew what that would mean 
if they went down in Miami and they're in game seven and they're mm-hmm. up, um, if they had been able to hold on. At one point in that game, Dick Jacobs, the owner, uh, and other executives had walked down in anticipation of the champagne celebration, um, had opened up the... We were downstairs to make sure we could get down there in time. Mm-hmm. So we're watching on a TV. He walks into the... Indians clubhouse and you could see this all the cellophane up over the lockers and the plastic coverings and all that and they had started etching the name of uh, the World Series MVP into the trophy and surprisingly and and great greatest trivia question of all time it was going to be Chad OJ believe it or not really yeah because no nobody else had really he won two games in that series nobody else had really and all of a sudden we look up and what happens happened starts to happen and Door flies open. Mm. Dick Jacobs stalks down the corridor never to come back again. And they lose that game in extras. Um, with One of the great guys in, in sports to me is, was Charles Nagy. And, you know, he unfortunately is the guy on the mound when, uh, when they lose that. And um, afterwards, you know, at those events, you know, you, you'd finish up writing hope that you didn't screw anything up too bad and you would go to to a a hospitality area afterwards just to have a beer and talk over with what you know with your peers like what did you write how how did you write it how much time did you have what did you try to do and so we went down there and the party that was happening was all marlins fans down there in those tents and and i don't want to say half of them because i don't know but a number of them had no idea who their players even were that year i mean they were talking like What's our second baseman's name? Boy, he had a good play, you know? And I just, it just hit me that time harder than most because I was like, these people in Cleveland, if they had just held on and won that game, yeah. there wasn't anybody in the city that didn't know every fact about that team that year and, and for that five-year period and would have appreciated it so much more than a lot of the people in Miami did. And it just came a couple years after that tragic boating accident, right? In 93. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you wrote a great, great story. I was in the uh, the Best American Sports Writing Series, honorable uh, selection. You know, the, the accident that killed Tim Cruz and Steve Owen, Bobby Hojita survived. Um, you know, so that was still in play as a, as a subtext to everything that was going it on. It was, and, and in some people's opinion, that, that was the, you know, that, that event... Um, sort of crystallized this team effort that that they felt carried them from 94. People don't remember that in 94, they were maybe a game and a half out of first place behind the White Sox um, when the strike happened. And I had no doubt at that point, I think it was August, maybe mid-August when it happened, um, that, that they probably would have caught Chicago and this whole playoff run would have started a year early. Um, But that... That story, um, I just, I'll never, I'll just never forget. Um, you know, you had Dave Kindred on, and Dave and I became really good friends in Atlanta, and I relied on him um, a lot of times during the course of my career, especially when I felt overmatched by a story, and that was one where I felt overmatched. You know, how do, how do you write that? You know, and he had said to me that, you know, his, his motto for what he's done and why he's a Hall of Fame writer is that he always tried to take writers to where he was and and make them feel what he felt and see what he saw. And he suggested to me that I go out to those uh, to the boat dock that those guys hit at the same time that they hit it. Mm. And uh, so I went out to Little Lake Nelly 
and stood there not being able to see two feet in front of my face. You know, there were no lights, um, nothing out there. And, um, and that's how I, I, I started to, to write that story. It was just terrible. It's just terrible. And, you know, I got, I had been down in spring training for about two weeks. I came back because they were taking the day off. Um, and Hargrove had really debated whether they should, he should give them a day off. And he did. And then that happened on the day off. And then for the next 10 spring trainings, I don't think they ever had a day off because of that, because of that, that one event. But I went back down, um, talked to as many people as I could, wrote that, and then um, had to go out to Steve Owen's funeral out in Portland directly from there. So it was really, really a sad time. Do you think about it from time to time? I do. I do. Um, you know, for a while, and I'm not, a, I don't know. I don't think I'm a fan of this. You know, we've all done it. Like, the anniversary of a terrible thing happens, and we're asked as writers to go back and talk to the people who probably don't want to relive it, mm-hmm. or certainly don't want to relive it as publicly as we would like them to. Um, and so, for a while, we would do that. We would do that story. Um, one year, we did it when uh, uh, Bonnie De Simone was working here, Bonnie Ford now, who's a terrific writer, and she had gone back and found... Um, Patty Olin and uh, Tim Cruz's wife and did it from the family's standpoint. And it was just a, a terrific story. But at some point, I always thought we should just stop that. Like, yeah. we know it's the anniversary. And if we want to write something about it that doesn't involve knocking on the door of the family members who have to talk about it again, I might be more in favor of those kind of stories. Yeah, that's a fine line. You know, you get to the point where it's like, is this being respectful? Of the subjects, right? Are yeah. You, are you thinking of them as human beings? Yeah. Or as some, and I remember, somebody you need for a story? I remember back then when it happened that Paul, you know, Paul Hoynes, and again, we get back to the heavy lifting that beat people have to do. Paul yeah. Hoynes was the one that was asked by our editors to go knock on Patty Owen's door and go knock on Tim Cruz's door of Tim Cruz's house and um, talk with Bob Ojeda's family. And, um, and Mike Hargrove was livid when he heard that, you know, Paul was asked to do that. Now, two days later, Hargrove was the kind of guy that, you know, we'd always say, oh, Hargrove's got the red ass today. You know, he he could get angry, but two days later, he generally would be back to normal and treat you respectfully. And and, and that that's what happened in that case. But it was, a, it was a real trying time for the organization. And I thought the organization handled it as well as they could have. It's such a tragic thing, you know, for the families, obviously, but the entire region of Northeast Ohio, it, it was something that everybody felt. And um, it's about as low a period as I can remember for Cleveland sports away from the actual competition itself. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I don't think anything has, thankfully, I don't think anything else has even rivaled it. Yeah. And then when you think about the joy of competition, nothing comes close to what's happened in the last 50 years as LeBron James leading the Cavs to the NBA title in 2016 and ending that you know, LeBron, what, you know, so much has been written and said about LeBron. I'm just curious about your perspective. You dealt with him. You saw him come up here as a high school phenom and live up to the hype. I mean, that's so amazing to me. As a writer who's somebody who dealt with LeBron a lot, what sticks in your mind about him? Well, the stuff that sticks in my mind is it happened really early in that, you know, I had heard about this kid as a phenom, phenom um, you know, when he was at, in high school. And I really didn't see, you know, other than watching highlights when 
local news crews would go down to do his games or stories. Um, I didn't really see him all that often. And so when he turned pro, um, I went down to the high school and when he was making his announcement. So here he is, 17 years old. He's been on the cover of SI as the chosen one. And he have a podium sitting up there at the school. And there's, there's two chairs off to his left, and there's a chair off to his right. And he gets up, and he calls out all of his teammates to come out and join him in high school. And these kids that had, what, a tenth of the talent that he had, he thanks them all for what they did for him, which I was very impressed by that. And it, yes. and it didn't seem like an act. You know, you, he just seemed like um, uh, uh, one of the more mature high school kids I'd ever come across, and it seemed like he had his priorities pretty well straight. And part of that press conference, the this working-class uh, couple, and I say that because the guy's wearing, you know, boots and jeans and a T-shirt, they come out and they sit in the two seats um, to his right, and then his mom comes out and sits in the seat over on his left. And after thanking his teammates, he calls these people, um, asks them to stand up, this couple, and he proceeds to talk about them and say that in the fourth grade he missed 90 days of school and in the fifth and sixth grade when he lived with, and I can't remember their names, mm-hmm. forgive me, Mr. and Mrs. Williams say, um, he missed zero days of school in the fourth grade and zero days of school in the fifth grade. And um, these were the people that when his mom was having issues, they took him in and he lived with them as a foster. And the fact that he thought that much to make them part of this day, mm-hmm. you know, Right. Here he was, how many grades later? Seven grades after fifth grade, and he still remembers that. So, you know, I'm not trying out to, to make him out to be some, you know, fantastic person because I don't know him very well. Um, but I was impressed early on by the kind of maturity. When he came here his first year, <laughs> we all remember some of the dumbest questions we've ever asked in sports writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, you de- maybe you never asked one. I might have eight in the top ten. <laughs> <laughs> but I've asked quite a few. And when I was in San Diego, uh, you know, as a sports writer out there, Paul Silas was the head coach at one point. Right. So now Paul Silas is the head coach in Cleveland. And I had not a great friendship with him or anything, but he remembered me from San Diego. And um, I just remembered when Kobe came into the league, right? Kobe mm-hmm. was like a skinny kid. He didn't like, immediately dominate every every possession that he was on the floor. And I thought, well, this kid's only 17. I mean, he's obviously going to have some growing pains. So we're talking, and uh, I asked Silas, I said, you know, are you going to have, like, the authority or the leeway to sit him if you need to sit him? And he looked at me like it was the dumbest thing he... <laughs> You think I'm going to sit LeBron James? Like, <laughs> why would I do that? First of all, the team's rebuilding. Like, why would I do that with a kid that we want on the court? And um, I just remember thinking, can I get that one back? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Even when it was halfway out of your mouth, you wanted to put the fishing line back. Like, what did I think was going to happen? You know, he was going to have six scoreless games in a row and they would right. have to take him off the court. Yeah. So I think in his first or second game, he went like 25 and 13 or something like that and did it for the next, uh, how many years has he been in the league? Yeah, oh, I mean, God. I wasn't around LeBron a lot, but I would come up occasionally and it, I think what you mentioned about him as a young person, it, it played out in the way he handled himself, um, you know, with the media and, and the situations. Yeah, obviously there's a lot of soap opera things about LeBron. Absolutely. And, and he's a bit of a drama queen with a lot of that. 
But I do feel like there was somebody who understood what the team needed as a group. And it always impressed me that he handled that and understood that. And obviously his skills were so great, but yeah. it went beyond being greatly skilled because there's a lot of skilled players, but yeah, no, he was clear. He was certainly a drama king and, yeah. and he, you which know, is great it, for copy, right? If I mean, something wasn't, something, if right. something wasn't, um, stirred up, he would sometimes stir it up himself, just whether he wanted to see what, how his teammates reacted or why his motivation, I, I don't know what his motivation was some of the time, but, um, but he always backed up pretty much what he what he had said or or started to do and um and the th- hey the things he's done off the court in Akron have been maybe just as impressive as what he's done on you know oh yeah right there's they're going to open up a medical facility down there now that he's affiliated with and his the the I prom the promise schools and um he's been a you know for a guy who who had a challenges growing up and as an idiot, I'm sitting here talking about how I get a job at the Philly Daily News at age 24, and it was a heady time. Do you think it was a heady time for LeBron to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated as the chosen one? I mean, exactly. come on. And he delivered. He yeah. delivered the championship. He delivered all, on all the hype for him as a pers- as an individual player. I was a little bit taken aback at the reaction of some of the people that I talked to after the Cavs won. Yeah, it was great, but it wasn't the Browns. It wasn't the Indians, you know? And I was like, really? Yeah, I just told You've that to somebody. You've been gifted. Yeah, I just this, told that to somebody. Yeah. One of the, maybe the top three or five, however you want to count them, greatest players in NBA history has fallen in your lap, not once, but twice. And who knows, maybe a third time. Who yeah, knows? Right, right. Um, and all you can say is, eh, it wasn't the Browns. Well, I just told somebody that very thing that I heard that recently from somebody about if the Browns would ever do it. And that's what I want to close with because you want to talk about drama and soap operas and not delivering. Let's talk about the Cleveland Browns because wow. you get here again. You got here after the the fumble and the, and the drive and you're here when they leave town. <laughs> yep. And you're here when they return and it's been just crazy since then. What's it been like for a writer all those years? Well, when I got here in 91, uh, one of the guys that everybody in this town knows because he's been covering the rounds forever, Tony Grossi, he and I got to be good friends. And he would say to me, you know, you wait, just wait till you see what this city's like when the Browns are good, you know, because he had obviously been here when they were. Yeah. And um, I was like, Okay, yeah, I get what you're saying, you know, all right. Um, from afar, I knew that they, you know, Cleveland was a great football town and, you know, Kosar had had success and they went, you know, right on the doorstep of these Super Bowls and all that. I, I knew all the history of it. Probably didn't appreciate the passion that had gone into it from a fan standpoint. So I was more than eager to hope Tony was right. And then I'm looking up and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and it's now Two decades have gone by without me seeing anything close to what he was talking about. I had a, a real brief uh, meeting with uh, Jim, Jimmy Haslam after he had fired yet another coach. I think it was after Rob Chudzinski. And at that point, he had fired Chudzinski. He had fired, let Joe Banner go, let Mike Lombardi go. It was... And it was like Spinal Tap drummers. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, yet more change. And, um, and I remember saying to him, like, you were part of the Steelers ownership group. Like, and he just looked at me 
kind of like Paul Silas looked at me that one time, <laughs> and he said, he goes, you know, people bring that up, but being a 10% owner of the Steelers meant that I had a nice loge, and I would go in on Sunday mornings and watch the game and leave Sunday afternoon. I wasn't part of the, like the... The hiring process is there when they were looking for GMs, and so he's kind of indicting himself. Yeah, so he was, he he thought you know people just made too big of a deal out of. It. He goes, "This is a hard job," and I'm like, I wanted to say, "Well, you're you're making it look yeah, apparently it exactly <laughs> that that hard." Um, I don't know what it will be like uh, if they ever get to a Super Bowl. Uh, I hope I'm still living. And living in Cleveland when well, it happens. You too, bud. Come on, it's not getting morbid here. <laughs> I know, but it could be a while. It could be. But, you know. I mean, who knows? Well, you think about it. You, you're able to write with humor all these years, and the Browns provided you plenty of material. <laughs> they certainly did. Do you have a personal favorite comedic <laughs> moment during your tenure as a columnist in Cleveland involving the Browns? The Manziel thing era to me was not only some of the best material. We had a quarterback, Todd who left the team, went to Vegas, wore a disguise, and called himself Billy. <laughs> I mean, come on. That stuff, even if you did a North Dallas 40 remake or, you know, an NFL version of, of Slapshot or Major League, you couldn't come up with something like that. I remember that. covering his first start. I was here for that game, and the Bengal guys were sacking him and then standing up and doing the show-me-the-money sign and mocking, and I'm like, this has to be some kind of low moment for the franchise. Oh, right? it had it had to be, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't that when uh, um, Marvin Lewis referred to him as a— a midget or oh, something yes, like that. Yes, yeah. yeah, Marvin had to like like walk that one back. Uh, yeah, he had to walk it back, and um, understandably so. But you know, his how? When have you ever heard a rival coach say that before a game about a player that he was going to have to face? They they had no fear of this guy. They were knocking him down in the end zone, and it was like the old cartoon where you the you just saw the circle of birds chirping over his <laughs> yeah. head as he stared up at the sky. I mean, it was just bizarre stuff. And, you know, the people here were just so thrilled when he got drafted, many of them, yeah, because they yeah. thought that he would be able to do the same thing he did in college. All you had to do is see what he did in college. He, he ran around in the backfield, turned his back to the line of scrimmage, threw these passes up, you know, in the middle of the field. All you had to do was look at that. His father was in Sports Illustrated talking about the fact that he thought his son had, might have a drinking problem. <laughs> and they drafted him. Yeah. Well, you know, he did deep research, uh, bud. Oh, uh, you've brought all this back now. I've been see, happily retired. See, and I now stirred you out of your I nap, can, and now I got you all worked up. I feel my blood pressure rising as we speak. You know, they had four first-round picks in, those, in, in a three-year period in 2012 and 2014. And they, within four years, those guys were out of the league. It was Trent Richardson and Whedon one year, and Justin Gilbert and Johnny Manziel the, the two years later. Well, I was here today. Whedon got caught underneath the flag too. So <laughs> that I, I <laughs> get me rewrite. That was the funniest thing. <laughs> well, this has been a funny time talking with you, Bud. I, I really appreciate. it. I'm sorry I woke you from your nap. <laughs> I'm glad I'm you did. Let you get back to the couch. <laughs> uh, but I really appreciate it. It's been so good to talk with you again and, and share stories from your. Illustrious. <laughs> well, long. Let's just career. agree that it was a longer word than long, so we'll go with it. But uh, thank you so much. Well, it's been it was a great. lot of fun. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. 
You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast